السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن وله قال رب رشح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل الأغدة من لساني يفقه قولي اللهم زيدنا علما O praise and thanks is due to Allah Azza wa Jal Peace and salutations upon Muhammad ibn Abdullah Salawatullahi wa salamuhu alayhi Peace and salutations upon his family, upon his friends, and upon all those who try to emulate him until the end of time. So this week, inshallah, we're going to start and we're going to look at Masjidun Nabawi. So Masjidun Nabawi is the masjid established by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. After which masjid? In Medina. Yes. Right. So they say, "Awwalu Masjid Buniya fi Medina, Masjid Kuba." That was the first Masjid that was built. And remember, we said that the Prophet ﷺ, when he came on Hijrah, he lived. When he came into Medina, he lived quite close to the Kuba area. That's why he built the Masjid in Kuba. Masjid al-Nabawi, it is the second most revered masjid in Islam. After which masjid? Right, the Haram of Makkah. And it is the second largest in the world. After which masjid? The Haram in Makkah. When Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he migrated to Medina, the chiefs of the city and his immediate followers rode around his camel in their best clothes and in glittering armor. Everyone was hoping that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa would stop by their house. The Prophet, peace be upon him, he said that wherever the camel stops, this will be my home. And the camel moved and when the camel stopped, this is at the present Day Masjid of Masjid al-Nabawi. Right, so this is obviously not immediately when the Prophet ﷺ came. So it was after a while. Right, so this was not immediately. Because immediately when he came, he stayed by someone else's house. He never had a house. But when he wanted a house, this is what happened. And where it stopped, this is where they built Masjid al-Nabawi. And we will see a bit later... We will speak about the Prophet ﷺ's house a bit later when we discuss the Rawdah. The Prophet ﷺ, he said that this is the home and he inquired as to who owned the land. The land contained a few date trees. It contained a few graves of the Mushrikun, of the polytheists a resting spot for herds of camel and was owned by the two orphan brothers. This land was owned by the two orphan brothers. What was their names? Anyone? Sahel and Suhail. So, Sahel was the one brother and Suhail was the other brother. They were twins. But Suhail is actually a diminutive form 
of Sahar. Like you get Umar and you get Umair. Umair is like the smaller version of Umar. You get Jundun, which is a soldier. And you get Junaid, which is a small soldier. You get Salim and Sulaim. Right? Salim is the big. And I had a teacher, right? Um, Sheikh Salim. And his son's name was Sulaim. Right? And I knew a few, few people like this. That the father would have one name and then the son would have like the diminutive of the father. And if my memory serves me correctly, I speak under correction. I think this was the two brothers, Sahel and Suhail, they killed Abu Jahl as well. I think. I'm actually quite, I'm more like on a 90% sure that it was them. Just double check. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he purchased the land, he cleared the trees, he dug up the graves, and he leveled the land. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he then gave orders that his newly acquired courtyard should be made into a masjid. And the work began immediately. Most of the building was done by bricks made of stone and needed clay. But in the middle of the northern wall, which faced the original Qibla in Jerusalem. So not the Qibla that we face in now. Obviously the opposite side. Stones were put on either side of the prayer niche. So like a mihrab was made. The palms in the courtyard were cut down and their trunks were used as pillars to support the roof of the palm branches. Where the greater part of the courtyard was left open. Small stones were laid on the floor to prevent it from becoming too muddy. Notice here there was no carpet. Right? In the Masjid of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Can you make salah? Right? Here's a question. Can you make salah with shoes on? Who says yes? Okay, so who says yes? Right? Who says no? Who says maybe? Right? Maybe. Right? So obviously, yes, I was going to get to that. So if the masjid is carpeted, you can't make with your shoes on. If you are outside, you're going for a walk, you're on the beach, you're in the forest, you went out with a family for the day, wherever you are, right? You can make salah wherever you are, so long it is clean and there's no nudges on the place where you're going to make salah and that your shoes are clean. And what I mean when I say that your shoes is clean, that there is no nudges on your shoes. In Cape Town, we have this misunderstanding that if there's dust on you or you can't walk around in the house bare feet, funny ISIS fail. Right? This is a misunderstanding. Yes, you can walk around in the house bare feet because what Islam speaks when they speak about dirty, they speak about what? About najasa, about najis. Anything else is not najis. So if you want to, if your shoe has a bit of dust on, your shoe has mud on, it is not najis. Correct? So you can make salah with your shoes on. There's, uh, right, Sheikh Mukbil rahimallahu ta'ala was the famous Yemeni scholar. Right, Sheikh Mukbil, he has a risala, he has a booklet, 
where he compiled all the ahadith that mentions that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would make salah with his shoes on. Then also remember that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa I don't know if I mentioned it in one of these classes, but there were five things that were given to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that was not given to any other Nabi. And one of those things was that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that Allah made the whole earth a masjid for me. So wherever you are, the place is clean, you know which way is Qibla, you can make salah. How do we get there? Right about the mud. At the rear end of the masjid, the Prophet, peace be upon him, he built a shaded area which was called As-Sufa. And we will come to that a bit later as well. In which the poor companions would spend the night. Two small huts were also constructed on the eastern side of the masjid to accommodate his two wives at the time, Aisha and Sauda. May Allah be pleased with all of them. The Prophet, peace be upon him, gave the Muslims of Medina the title of what? What were the Muslims of Medina called? The? The Ansar. And the people of Mad- Mecca were called? Why were they called the Muhajirin? Because they made Hijrah. Hijrah means to move from one place to another place. And the Ansar, what does the word Ansar mean? Help us, right? From the word Nasara Yansuru, which means to help. So for those that learn Arabic, right, the word Nasara is a word that comes up very often when you learn at the start of your Arabic. Right? Nasara, Fataha, Daraba. Right? These are the examples that they always give you. إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ When the help of Allah came. Right? So, Nasara. The Ansar and the Muhajirin were those that made Hijrah from Mecca to Medina. So, we said that the Prophet wasallam he gave them the title of Ansar, which means helpers. Whereas the Muslims of Quraysh and other tribes who had left their homes from Mecca, they were called the Muhajirun. They all took part in the work, in the construction of Masjid al-Nabawi, the Ansar and the Muhajirun. And they all worked very hard. The masjid was built twice during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ. The masjid was reconstructed twice. The first time was shortly after he had made hijrah to Medina, with the size of the masjid being approximately 35 by 30 meters, and the height was about 2.5 meters. How high is 2.5 meters? About this height? Slightly lower. There? Okay. Right, so that's about 2.5 meters. It was rebuilt seven years later after the Fath of Khaybar, the Battle of Khaybar. The increase in number of Muslims by then necessitated an increase in the area of the mosque to accommodate more worshippers. Uthman radiallahu anhi paid for the land to accommodate the extension which made the masjid approximately 50 by 50 meters. The height was also increased to 3.5 meters. So I'm sure that is higher than this now.
when the revelation came down to change Qibla to Mecca, the whole masjid was reorientated to the south. The masjid also served as a religious school, a community center, a court, and also a confinement for prisons. This is what a masjid must be. A masjid is not just a place for salah. That's the main focus, right? Obviously for salah. But the masjid is supposed to have more than that. Must be a place of learning. Must be a place where the community can come. Must be a place where the children can come, where they can come and play. A place where the sisters can come and meet. And this is why Masajid should also, it should be an Islamic center. And not just a masjid. And this is, alhamdulillah, what you find in the West today. Right? If you go into Europe and you go into America as well, to Canada, you will see. They have Islamic centers. Where they have a gym, where they have a preschool, where they have a school. They have a cafeteria. Right? All these things in the complex and they have the masjid. Salah area, right? That is how it should be. Anas radiallahu anhi reported that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, whoever performs 40 salahs in my masjid, not missing one salah in the masjid, for him is granted exemption from the fire of Jahannam. This hadith is weak. Right? This hadith is weak and wasn't supposed to be in this week's notes. I don't know why or how it came into this week's notes. I was going to discuss this hadith next week, inshallah. Right, so I'm not going to focus on this hadith now. Right, this hadith will be focused on next week. But know that this hadith is weak and is not supposed to. Yes, we will explain it next week. So this is basically the masjid of the Prophet, peace be upon him. The next important place that we're going to look in the masjid of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the rawda. Nam Habibi. Yes. The land was always purchased from the Ansar for the masjid on two occasions. Uthman radiallahu anhu. Yeah. And over history it was purchased. And was never given to the Prophet for him to study. And also they're going to extend now further. So they bind that hotels also from the people. Right. So for those that have been to Medina, right? I'm not talking about the front. Talking about the back where we all stay. Right? So where the Taiba center is, those hotels and that, they're going to be thrown down. Masjid's going to come back. Why is the Masjid not going forward? Right, that's number one. And also last year, we'll discuss this later, but was it last year? When did I come home? 
2000, now 2020, I came home 2019, February. So maybe I think about November of 2018 or something. Right now, for those that have been, you'll know the part when you come in by Bab Salam, when you're going to make ziyarah to the Prophet Sallallahu Qabr. Right? Then you remember the Imam used to make Salah there. Now where does the Imam make Salah? He makes Salah in the Rauda. And this is where the Prophet Sallallahu originally made Salah. So, they're obviously not going to extend the masjid forward. They have to extend backwards. So, Inam Habibi. Okay. Right? The Rauda. Uh, that also reminds me, I, I don't know, did we, I don't know if I did the hadith here or one of my other classes with regards to Jabir radiallahu anhu with his camel. No. So basically also something similar to that. We, this was with Jabir. He didn't want to. He had a very slow camel. This camel was so slow that they went on one expedition. And he was right at the back. So the Prophet comes to Jabir and he says, you know what? Jabir explains to the Prophet, you know, this camel is so slow, it can't do anything. You know, it's almost like a Mazda 3 to 3 or something now in today's time, right? It can't do anything, can't drive up a hill. That's how slow this camel was. And I must remember that Jabir at this time, he was going through what? He was going through a bit of financial difficulty as well. Because his father passed away in one of the battles. And his father had a few debts to be paid. And he had to look after his sisters. And he couldn't. He was still young. Anyways, the Prophet ﷺ comes. And the Prophet ﷺ, he touches the camel. And he strokes the camel and he says some words to the camel. And Jabir says that this camel was almost like a new camel. Yeah, so now it was like upgraded now. This was the camel. And then what does the Prophet tell Jabir? Okay, now I remember it wasn't in this class. Yes, because I remember exactly why I mentioned this idea. So so then the Prophet tells Jabir, I'm going to buy this camel from you. Jabir says, no. I'm not going to sell you the camel now. This is my camel. The Prophet just went on. Ten, the hadith mentions about ten times. The Prophet's asking Jabi says no. Prophet's asking Jabi says no. Prophet's asking Jabi says no. Jabi. And it goes on like this. Afterwards, Jabi agrees. Jabi says, you know what? On one condition though. That you let me ride my camel for the last time to my house or whatever. And that was now they're back in Medina. And then you, I'll bring the camel to you the next day. Anyways, the Prophet agrees. So this also shows you if you're in a trade agreement with someone, you're selling something, you can do what? You can put certain conditions down, so long the conditions are halal. Anyways, he comes back the next day, the Prophet says, I'm pays Jabir. Jabir still also. Jabir walks away. 
leaves the camel. The Prophet calls Jabu back. He says, you know what? You have the money, but take the camel also as well. It's your camel. So he said, no, but so the Prophet said, take your camel. It's fine. Pay your debts or whatever, and you take your camel. So this, uh, why did I mention it in my other class? Now I remember, because this proves, and this is Dalil, that if I sell something to this brother, and he pays me for it, but he wants me, but he gives my product back, so he is allowed to do that. Taken from the proof of this hadith. But see Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa how he was with his companions. He knew that Jabir loved it. And maybe he knew that had he given money to Jabir, he wouldn't have accepted it. So, buy the camel. He has money, he can sort out his debt, look after his sisters, whatever. But he gives the camel back to him also. And the camel is like a Ferrari. <laughs> so the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa regarding the rawda, this hadith is one of the ahadith that is mutawatir. Have you ever heard this word mutawatir before? Yes or no? No? Okay. So this hadith is narrated via many chains of narration. Such as a report narrated by Imam al-Bukhari and Muslim on the authority of Abu Huraira radiyallahu an, who mentioned that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that ما بين بيتي ومنبري روضة من رياض الجنة that the area between my house and my member is one of the gardens of the gardens of paradise this hadith is found in Bukhari and Muslim so I mentioned that this hadith it is a mutawatir hadith a mutawatir hadith is a hadith that so many people narrated that it is impossible that it could be a what? That it could be a fabrication or it could be a lie or weak. So the scholars they have placed four conditions. Four conditions with regards to the mutawatir hadith. Number one, it should have been narrated by a large number. And when we mean a large number, on every tabaka, meaning on every level until it reach Imam Bukhari or Muslim or Tirmidhi, they will have three or five or ten or twenty or thirty or a hundred or three hundred and thirty. Why am I mentioning all these numbers? Because this is the difference that the ulama of hadith brings to say how many people can be in the chain or how many people will be on the level for a mutawatir hadith. So some say there needs to be five. Some say there must be ten. Some say there must be 313. How did they get to 313? From the battle of Padr. <laughs> right? So this is the different numbers of the ulama. But what seems to be the most common view is that it is three or more people on every level and Allah knows Best. So number one, it should have a large number of narrators. Number two, the number should be so large that it is impossible that they could have all agreed to have agreed that it could be an or a lie. So for example, 
Many of us, we have not been to America. Correct? But we know that there is a Statue of Liberty. And it's so, right, this report, it's mutawatir, that there is a Statue of Liberty, that it's impossible that someone can say that it is a lie. Let's look at a story more to home. For those brothers and sisters that are much older than some of us, when the late Imam Harun passed away, two, I think two days afterwards, or the day of the Janazah, there was what in Tawbah? There was a tremor. Right? So obviously this tremor has nothing to do with the death of the Imam. That's the first point. But secondly, it is mutawatir that the tremor took place. Maybe in our time we can speak about what? The tornado in Sarya State and Mananba. Right? It's mutawatir reports. No one can come tell us that... There was no earthquake, I mean no tornado. We all know that there was a tornado. So this is what is happening here. Point number three. There should be a large number of narrators at every stage of the chain of narration. And I mentioned that earlier. So it should be, or it should have been narrated by a large number of, or from a large number all the way back to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And point number four, it should be based on what they saw or what they heard. So they should say that we heard or we saw. Because if it is not like that, then it is possible for error to creep in. For example, right? An example of a mutawatir hadith. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, Man kadaba alayya muta'amidan falyatabawwa maq'adahu innar. That whosoever lies against me deliberately, he builds for himself a place in the fire of Jahannam. This hadith is mutawatir. This hadith was narrated by more than 72 sahaba. And was narrated from them by a huge number of narrators whom it is impossible to list at the moment. And so this was just an example I'm giving. And another example was the hadith of the Rawdah. So some people, they come with a narration and they say, the area between my grave and my mimba is a piece from the piece of the gardens of paradise. Do you think this narration is correct or not? If you think this narration is correct, raise your hands. Okay, let me rephrase. If you see nothing wrong with this narration, you can raise your hands. Right, we're going to come to that. You want to say? Right, so this is why the ulama say that there is a bit of a problem with this narration. With the usage of the word, my grave. Because number one, it is contrary to the report of the majority of narrators. That says, my house. Hence, it seems that whoever used the word my grave made a mistake in their narration. And number two, if this wording was correct, right, like then the Sahaba, they would have known where to bury Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And remember when Muhammad sallallahu passed away, the Sahaba, they disputed amongst one another where to bury him. So had this narration been there, Using the word grave, they would have known. Put him in the house. 
They didn't know. And what happened afterwards was, it was Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu that came and said that the Anbiya must be buried where they have passed away and this is why Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa was buried in his house. The next point we want to look at. What is the meaning of this hadith? So number one, they say, this place is likened to one of the gardens of paradise in that the one who sits there attains the tranquility and peace. Number two, worship in this place, meaning in the Rawdah, is a means of attaining admittance into Jannah. This view was favored by Ibn Hazm in his book Al-Muhalla. It was narrated by Ibn Taymiyyah from Imam Ahmad that he preferred to pray in the Rawdah. Point number three. The area between the member and the house of the Prophet, peace be upon him, will itself be one of the gardens of paradise in the year after. Al-Qadi Iyad, he said in his book Ash-Shifa, the words one of the gardens of paradise may be understood in two ways. Number one, that worshipping thee will be rewarded with paradise, we mentioned this, and that dua and pray in this place deserves that reward, as it is also said that paradise lies between al-jannatu tahta or al-jannatu fi dhilal al-sayf. In one of the narrations of the Prophet, peace be upon him, he says that jannah lies in the shade of the swords. That was point number one. Point number two, Qadiyyad, he says that Allah will move that spot. He's going to move. Allah will move that rawdah and it will actually be part of paradise. This was the view of Ad-Dawudi and in that quote. And this is found in the book Ash-Shifa of Qadi Iyad. Ibn Abdul Bar, the famous Maliki scholar, he says, or he, not Maliki scholar, but rather he was famous for his explanation of the Muwatta of Imam Malik. Some said that what is meant at this spot is that the spot will be taken up on the day of Qiyamah, the day of resurrection, and it will become part of the garden of paradise. And this seems to be the view of majority of the ulama. So to sum up, that this place, this rawdah, there is evidence that it has virtue, which dictates that the Muslim should be keen to sit in it and pray there. However, what matters more is to fear Allah Azza wa Jal. Right? Meaning that you can't just go sit all day in the rawdah. You must have taqwa. You must fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because this is the most important thing that is going to get you into Jannah. Besides the mercy of Allah is that you need to be God conscious. Yes. And also another important thing that I would like to highlight. Two things. Number one. The Rawdah is always full. So don't be selfish. 
And don't push and fight when you are in the Rawdah. Because to make Salah in the Rawdah is what? It is a Sunnah. Right? It is Sunnah to be there. But the protection of your Muslim brothers and sisters is for. So why harming them? This is something haram. So you are doing something haram to attain a Sunnah? Then rather stay away. Right? That's point number one. Point number two for the males. Right? You're going to come, there might be a time when you come there. The masjid is empty. So where must you make salah? In the roda or must you walk forward? Okay, now obviously it's easier because the imam is in the roda, so everyone is from the back. But when we were studying there, the imam would make in front. So there came a time in the year when there was no hajj, there was no, right? So after hajj, umrah visas were not open yet. So the masjid was empty. So we had to walk all the way to the front. So some people, they would walk. The farsalah started, but they would stand in the roda. You can't. If there's a gap for you in front, you need to make salah, fill the gaps from the front. If it means now that you ended up in the roda, alhamdulillah. But, these are the two things that I would have liked to mention. Is there any questions before we carry on? No? The mihrab of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Naam habibi. Meaning? To us? No. So you go in the masjid. You tahiyah to masjid. Or you just make two raka'ahs. Nafil salah. That's why it's also important to know that the makru times of salah. You can't go and go make salah in the road now. You can't go. So for example, after Asr. I come into the masjid after Asr. The road is empty. Can I go make? Yeah, because you can't make two rak- Unless you came into the masjid. So you came into the masjid. You never sat down yet. And you're going to make tahiyah to masjid. Now you can walk to the road. If it's empty, you can go make that. Two rak'ats of tahiyah to masjid. Or I made wudu. So we know that there's narrations that says that you make two rakats after making wudu. So I come into the masjid, I walk to the roda, this is fine. But I came into the masjid, I made my asr salah finish, now I recited a bit of Quran, and I see, the roda is empty. So now I go there and I want to make two rakats, nothing? No. Because now it's a makru time. So what we learn from this is that at makru times, you are allowed to make salah if there is a reason to Make the salah. For example, enter in the masjid. For example, salah wudu. For example, salah to janazah. Right? So there must be a sabab, a reason. And this is the, seems to be the correct opinion. And Allah knows best. Naam Habibi. Next week lesson. That is next week's lesson, inshallah. So the mihrab of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The Prophet, peace be upon him, he prayed for about 16 months facing towards Al-Quds. If one was to walk away from the Aisha column, leaving it towards your back, the fifth column will be in line with the door marked as Bab Jibreel. This fifth column was the approximate praying spot of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam 
for the above period, meaning when he faced Jerusalem. It was near to the extreme north boundary of the original masjid. After the change of Qibla, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he offered salah near Aisha radiallahu anha's column for a short period while facing the Kaaba. Later on, he started to lead the salah at the spot where the Mihrab Nabawi is nowadays. And this is where the Imam stands today. Note that there was no Mihrab at the spot during the period of the Prophet. And the four Khalifs in... Right? So there was no Mihrab at the spot during the Prophet Sallallahu time and the four Khalifs. In the time of Umar, Ibn Abdul Aziz, he made a praying niche in the form of a Mihrab. Since then it was called Mihrabun Nabawi. If you stand or if you were to stand in the Mihrab to offer play, your place of sajda will be where Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's feet used to be. The Prophet, peace be upon him, place of sajda is intentionally covered by the thick wall of the mihrab. Right, so obviously, when I send the PowerPoint, I put some pictures in the PowerPoint so you can see. Um, the next point, the mimba, the pulpit of the Prophet, peace be upon him. The Prophet, peace be upon him, used to lean against the trunk of a palm tree. Whilst delivering a sermon, the Ansar humbly suggested to him, if you approve, we can make a pulpit for you. The Prophet, peace be upon him, he approved and a pulpit was made. The Prophet, peace be upon him, sat on this pulpit to make an address. When the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, started using this pulpit, the old tree that he leaned on, yearned for him and he started to cry like a camel missing its calf. Right? This is narrated in authentic ahadith. The Prophet peace be upon him, he hugged the trunk until it had calmed down and then ordered that a ditch be dug and the trunk be buried decently into it. The Prophet peace be upon him used to stand on the third rung, meaning the third step whilst delivering his sermons. When Abu Bakr became Khalif, he stood on the second step. And when Umar became Khalif, he stood on the first step. Uthman did as Umar did for six years before he returned to the old position of the Prophet. Amir Muawiyah made a pulpit consisting of nine rungs. The leader started sitting on the seventh rung. The pulpit has, has since been kept in this form and the khatib has been sitting on the seventh step until that time. The pulpit has been replaced on many occasions throughout the centuries. Right, the present pulpit you will see again. I've added a picture for that as well. Then I've also added the picture of the Adhan platform where the Mu'adhins, where they make Adhan. Major pillars of Masjidun Nabawi. Right, again, there's a picture here with the numbers to the pillar and what each number stands for. Number one, the pillar of Hanana, the weeping pillar. This is called 
also known as Ustawana, which means pillar, Mukhallaq. This is the most blessed of the pillars, for this was where Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam's place of salah. On this point or this spot, there was once a date palm tree, and we mentioned this. That the Prophet, peace be upon him, he used to lean against this pillar when he gave khutbah. It so happened that change took place and this tree started crying and the Prophet wasallam had to pacify him. Right, so we dealt that. The next pillar is that known as Ustawana as-Sarir or the pillar of Sarir. Sarir literally it means a sleeping place. It is reported that the Prophet peace be upon him used to make i'tikaf here also. And he used to sleep here whilst he was in i'tikaf. A platform of wood used to be put here for him to sleep on. The next pillar is known as the pillar of Tawbah. This was also known as the pillar of Abu Lubaba. He was a very famous companion and before Islam, he had much dealings with the Jews of Panu Qurayla. When they acted treacherously during the battle of the trench. Which battle is this known as the battle of? Khandaq. And they were taken captive. He told them that they were to be killed by making a sign cross or across his throat. After having done that, he became so grieved at this indiscretion that he would not rest. He entered the masjid at this spot where Daitri used to stand. He tied himself to the trunk and he said, as long as my repentance is not accepted by Allah, I shall not untie myself. The Prophet, peace be upon him, he said he must undo this bonds. When the Prophet heard this, he said, if he had come to me, I would have begged forgiveness on his behalf. Now he acted on his own initiative. I cannot untie him until his repentance has been accepted. For many days he remained tied, right? Except for Salah and the call of nature. At such times his wife and daughter used to untie him and then again tied him to the tree. He remained without food and drink as a result of which his sight and hearing became affected. Then after a few days one morning, the Prophet ﷺ was in tahajjud pray in the house of Umm Salama. He received the good news that his tawbah had been accepted. The Sahaba conveyed the news to him and he wanted to untie him, but he refused, saying, as long as the Prophet does not untie me, with his blessed hands, I shall not allow anyone to do this. The Prophet ﷺ, he entered for Fajr Salah and he untied him. The next pillar that we're going to look at is the pillar of Aisha radiallahu anha. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would make his prayers here and afterwards move to the place of Hanana. It is also known as the 
pillar of the Qura. The reason for this is that Aisha reports that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said in this masjid is one such spot that if people knew its true blessed nature of, they would have flocked towards it in such a way to pray there that it would be or they would have Okay, yes. Not Qura, but Qurra. They would have casted lots. Right? So they would have casted lots so that each one can pray there. If they knew the special place of the, or the special virtue of this. People asked her to point out the exact spot, but she refused to do that. Later on, at the persistence of Abdullah ibn Zubair, she pointed to the spot. Hence, it is called the spot of Aisha. Because the hadith is reported by her and the exact spot was shown by her. It is a fact that Abu Bakr and Umar would often pray at this exact spot. The pillar of Ali is also known as the pillar of Maharas or Hars. Hars means to watch or protect. This is where they get the word a haris. A haris is a, in football, it will be a goalkeeper. In other terms, a haris is a security guard. Because what does a security do? He watches and looks after things. This used to be the place where some of the sahaba used to sit when keeping watch or acting as gatekeepers. Ali radiallahu an used to be the one who mostly acted as such. For which he often, for which it is often called the pillar of Ali. When the Prophet peace be upon him entered the masjid from the door of Aisha's room, he passed through the spot. Then the next pillar is the pillar of Wufud. Wufud means delegations. This is where Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam would meet people and other tribes come and speak to him. This is also where Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam taught the companions the deen of Islam. Number seven was the pillar of Jibreel. This was the usual place where Jibreel would used to meet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Today it cannot be seen as it is inside the sacred chamber of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. All the other pillars that I spoke about you still be able to see because it is not in the household, the chamber of the Prophet, peace be upon him. And then the last pillar, is this the last pillar? Yes, is this is the last pillar. Number eight, the pillar known as the pillar of Tahajjud. It is reported that this was the spot where late at night a carpet was spread for Muhammad, peace be upon him, after all the people had left. It is currently covered by a bookcase, but this historic photo shows what exists behind it. That is a photo you will see when you open the PowerPoint. The next point I want to look at, or next thing we want to discuss, is the Ashabu Sufa platform. The Ashabu Sufa were companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, who along with the performance of religious duties were mostly tradesmen, or farmers. Some had, however, dedicated their lives exclusively for prayer and to be close 
in close company of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. They had neither wives nor children, and if any were to get married, he would leave the group. Many of them would go to the jungle in the day to collect wood, with or which would then be sold for money to feed themselves. There currently exists a raised, raised platform behind the platform where the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam made tahajjud. It is on this, it is on the right of those entering from Bab Jibril. This platform is commonly mistaken to be the platform of Ashabu Sufa. It was actually built by the Turks for service and custodial personal of the masjid. So there's a raised platform. If you're facing Qibla, Bab Jibril, you'll see people sit, you'll see it's a raised platform. That is not the Ahlu Sufa. This is what we're trying to say. The section sits outside the masjid in the time of the Prophet, so could not have been the place of the Sufa. The precise number of Ashabu Sufa is not known, but it is estimated that the Sufa could hold up to 300 people at one time. And that place is small. And that roughly 70 people made up its permanent residence. The initial inhabitants of the Sufa were members who had migrated from Mecca and were without any accommodation. Some of the companions who at one time were members of the Ashabu Sufa were Abu Huraira, Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, Ka'b ibn Malik, Salman al-Farsi, Hanzala, Hudayfa ibn Yaman, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Suhaib ibn Sanan al-Rumi, Bilal ibn Rabah and many others, may Allah be pleased with all of them. The Ashabu Sufa passed their lives in the service of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In the morning they would listen to his words of wisdom and at night after sleeping for a while they would spend the rest of the time in prayer. Because of their devotion and prayer, many of the Ashabu Sufa, they were very poor. And they were unable to afford clothing. Abu Huraira said, I saw 70 of the Ashabu Sufa in such a condition that none of them had complete dress for themselves. Each one of them had one sheet that he had tied, up, tied up with his neck. Some of them had sheets reached near the ankles, but others had sheets reached just below the knees. Each one of them used to hold the partition of his sheet with his right hand, or with his hand, lest his body is exposed. Most of the companions went for two days in succession without food. So much so that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam came into the masjid to lead the congregational prayer. They would fall down due to weakness. So they never had enough strength. They would fall down. Food given in charity to the Prophet was given to them. And when the Prophet was offered food as a present, he would invite them to share with it. Often Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would ask one of his other companions to take some of the Ashabu Sufa for supper to entertain them as best as they could. Sa'ad ibn Ubada sometimes entertained as many as 80 of the Ashabu Sufa. Uqba ibn Amir, he said, the Prophet peace be upon him came to us while we were sitting on the Sufa and asked if any of us would like to go to the market 
and fetch from their two she-camels of the finest breed without committing any sin or severing a tie of kingship. We replied that every one of us would like to do that. Then the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, Go into the masjid and reciting or teaching two ayat or more are more precious than two she-camels. Three ayat are more precious than three she-camels and that similar reciting or teaching of four ayat. This is better than four she-camels and equal to a number of camels. This hadith is found in Muslim. So here we see Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he gives the virtue of making salah in the masjid. Right, this is for the men. That make salah in the masjid. As for the females, your reward is exactly the same as that of the men for making salah in your home. If not greater. Why do I say if not greater? Because the home is a place of distractions. So if a female, she makes wudu before the waqt, she has a special place in the house where she makes salah. There's no disturbances. And before the adhan goes off, she has wudu already, she sits on a prayer mat. She waits for the waqt to come in. The waqt comes in, she makes a salah. She perfected a wudu, she perfects a salah. Right? There are many, many ahadith that says that if a man does all this and he comes to the masjid, he gets the reward of a mujahid fi sabilillah. The ulama says that this is the same for a female that makes salah at home. Right? So both is getting the reward. And a man, the male should be making salah in the masjid. Obviously now, Right, you might have noticed that right, it took me a bit hard to read this hadith. And the reason for this is because of what we are experiencing. And also this lesson it was a bit of a tough lesson to prepare and a bit of a tough lesson because right, speaking about Mashidu Nabawi and knowing that the Mashid has been closed. Right, there's no it's not open and this again is incorrect. People are saying there's no salah in the masjid. This is incorrect. Masjid al-Nabawi and Masjid al-Haram, there is still salah being made, but it's been closed off to the public. So the imam is there, some of the cleaners are there, some of the security is there. Maybe about 40, 50 people, they are still making salah. And subhanallah, I've, we've never, in our wildest imagination, we lived in the country for six years, in Medina. We never thought that you're going to see the day that the masjid is closed. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. And this is a time that we need to turn back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a time where we need to increase in our istighfar and make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And remember, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, فَقُلْتُ اسْتَغْفِرُوا رَبَّكُمْ إِنَّهُ كَانَ غَفَارًا In Surah Al-Nuh, 
Allah says, فَكُلْتُ اسْتَغْفِرُوا رَبَّكُمْ And seek the forgiveness of your Lord. إِنَّهُ كَانَ غَفَّارًا That He, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is the one that accepts and that forgives. The Prophet, peace be upon him, he used to make istighfar up to 100 times a day. And yet he was sinless. So what about us? So make istighfar, seek the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, give a lot of charity, give sadaqah, recite Quran, recite adhkar, and seek the protection of or from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, because a lot of what is happening it is because of our sins, because of our shortcomings. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, that all of the children of Adam, they are sinners. كُلُّ بْنِ آدَمُ But the best of them is those that return back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So seek the forgiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this also brings us to the end of lesson 7. Right? This is lesson 7. This is 